Brain for Business, your podcast for all things brain, behavioural and organisational science. We are delighted that you have joined us. As always, to listen back to past episodes, make sure to check out our website, brainforbusiness.ie and feel free to drop us a note via the website with any comments, feedback or even questions. So to today's show, when we look back on history, The Industrial Revolution in Britain seems like an historical inevitability. Following on from the Scottish Enlightenment and the growth of Britannia as a global empire and trading power, surely the Industrial Revolution as we now know it was uniquely and indeed distinctly British. But is this really the case? To discuss this, and indeed other questions, it is a real pleasure to welcome to Brain for Business, Dr. Anton Howes. Anton is an innovation historian focusing on the development of innovation over the centuries and author of the Age of Invention newsletter. He is head of innovation research at the Entrepreneurs Network, a UK-based think tank, and honorary historian in residence at the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce, having written its latest history. Anton's forthcoming book will examine why innovation accelerated in 17th and 18th century Britain, which in turn led to the Industrial Revolution. Anton, welcome to Brain for Business. Hi, thanks for having me on. We are delighted that you have uh, agreed to join us because we're really curious about the Industrial Revolution and the links to innovation. Now, we hear this term Industrial Revolution quite a bit, and, and some even argue that we are now in the midst of the fifth Industrial Revolution. But perhaps you might start by telling us what was the original Industrial Revolution? Yeah, it's a very loaded term, unfortunately. And it's actually one of those funny things where I think basically every historian who studies it tends to say, you know, that nearly every book that I opened that has a kind of big thing about the Industrial Revolution will start off by saying, this is actually a terrible term and none of us really like using it, but everyone's (laughs) been using it for the last few decades. So maybe we should just carry on with it. And so when you say Industrial Revolution, you kind of get this Dickensian picture of children going into down mines and into factories and you can you think of you know smoke belching chimneys and maybe the the ring and clatter of of hammers upon iron and perhaps the 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 sound of cotton machinery spinning but actually it's so much more than that I think the main way to think of the industrial revolution or at least this period and, and the bit that we actually I think as economic historians or as innovation uh, people who look at innovation and the, the thing that we really care about is actually the acceleration of innovation um, that takes place in this period. So, and what I mean by that is not just things like the steam engine, not just things like cotton machinery or improvements in iron metallurgy, but really across every single industry from agriculture to watchmaking to everything in between from ceramics to landscape gardening Um, anything that you can think of starts to see this sort of progressive improvement taking place in production methods, in styles, um, in, I mean, even in kind of safety methods, anything that you can think of starts being improved in one way or another. And that happens right across the, uh, right across the board um, and seems to be extremely concentrated in Britain and particularly in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, So, 
you mentioned the fifth industrial revolution. One of the ways that people like to categorize these things is to split off, you know, different parts of um, technological history into into various stages. Um, so very often, the first industrial revolution is is associated with the kind of Dickensian view of things, um, or this very steam-heavy um, kind of uh, period. The second industrial revolution you sometimes hear people talking about as being a kind of age of chemicals and electricity. Um, the third one I don't actually see very often mentioned on its own, in fact pretty much ever, um, but I suppose in some ways people will associate it with um, Fordism, mass manufacturing in the 20th century, and perhaps the rise of the motor car, um, and you know the really large factories and production lines. Um, but really, I mean, frankly, I don't think that these categorizations are all that helpful, partly because a lot of those technological developments happen alongside one another, and really the first industrial revolution, really, I would say just the industrial revolution, is across the board. It's not just particular technologies or, or general purpose technologies, as they're sometimes called. Um, it really is a, a kind of groundswell of innovation, a rising tide that lifts all boats in every industry and, or in, in any kind of field of endeavour or field of human activity. Um, and it's something that we're actually still living through today, right? So if you look at changes in GDP per capita or, or, or in living standards over the long run in countries like Britain and then its closer neighbours and now further and further afield as well to other countries, you know, very famously recently in East Asia, um, what you actually see is essentially a straight line um, of of, of improvement because once you get going with that acceleration of innovation um, it then continues and continues on um, and just finds its, its way seeping into more and more industries more and more fields of human endeavor um, so really in a sense I think we're actually still living through that original um, phase so there isn't really in, in my view a fifth industrial revolution you may as well say that there's a 39th or a hundredth 101st Industrial Revolution, um, because really what we see tends to look like a straight line when you, when you, when you look at the various measures. It makes a lot of sense when you put it in those terms, because clearly different countries develop at different times in different ways and at different paces. But if we think about the, you know, the first Industrial Revolution, if you will, why did that, do you think, happen in in Britain? Or, or even was it more an English thing? Was it more England rather than Britain? Yeah, I mean, looking at the history of it, one of the interesting things is it's actually originally associated with London, I would say specifically, um, as a particular hub, a particular centre where you see this bubbling up of invention. And I, and I mean this in a very early period, in the late 16th, early 17th centuries, which is rather earlier than most people would place the Industrial Revolution. Um, but is actually when I think most of the real action is happening. That's when you start to get the original hub from which you then almost kind of get satellite hubs forming um, throughout the country and actually um, outside of the country as well. Um, so you know, people often associate the Industrial Revolution with the North, with the Midlands, perhaps with Scotland as well. But actually, I would say that those hubs start to emerge only a bit later on in the same way that, you know, today, we, when we talk about Silicon Valley as being this great innovation hub, um, nowadays you'll see people mentioning maybe Boulder in Colorado, maybe um, Austin in Texas, maybe, maybe uh, Miami in Florida. I mean, these are kind of satellite hubs from the original cluster. 
um, which may well in the next few decades completely take over people's imagination. They'll be the ones that people will be talking about. Um, but ultimately, Silicon Valley will often appear to, at least from, from our point of view right now, as being the original one. I, th I think London plays a similar role in the late 16th, early 17th centuries for what then later becomes in the 18th century and, eight, and 19th century kind of other locations within Britain um, where not just more invention but more industry is taking place. That said, London actually still continues to be one of the places where most of the invention is happening, even if those inventions are then being applied in other parts of the country or in other parts of the world. Um, so very often if you look at the patent record, London is still massively dominant um, in the 19th century, and part of that's just its population size, but um, it is still the hub of where most of the in invention appears to be taking place. Um, it's just that very often those inventors will then, once they've invented something, they'll find the capital and then they'll, they'll figure out where the best place in the country is to actually implement those machines, which will tend to be in other more industry-specific hubs, perhaps in you know, Birmingham, in Manchester, in Sheffield, um, and what have you. So that, I think, is, is part of what's going on, going on there. And would you also see a role for, for things like, you know, the coffee houses in the city of London that, that have grew up and, and also the different trading companies that were perhaps based in London and, you know, the conversations that might have been happening, the, the various royal societies and how they brought people together with different ideas and different ways of, of looking at things? Yes, absolutely. I, I think the, the, in a way, it's, it's weird because I think in the popular perception of say a big grand word like the enlightenment things like coffee houses feature very prominently as do the societies and yet weirdly a lot of the time when you when you talk to people about the industrial revolution they kind of set that kind of stuff to one side and, and they think oh it's it's too amorphous and too difficult to kind of pin down um, to for it to seem like it's actually that important and i think it very much is it's it's, it's the places where invention is able to spread, where people are able to inspire one another, that I think are probably the most important um, factor there. Um, and yes, trading companies are extremely important very early on in the 16th century. That's when most of them are, are being formed. You've got the Muscovy Company in the 1550s. Um, you've got various other companies popping up um, in between. Um, the East India Company is set up, um, starts to emerge in the, in the late 1590s. Um, and those those concentrations of capital are quite important, not just as being um, ways for, for inventors to, to, to access, I guess, alternative patronage, really, to the kind of traditional aristocratic mode, um, but also to access it in a much more distributed kind of way. And does that then suggest that rather than necessarily being a key player in the Industrial Revolution as, as we know it, the colonies were perhaps more a source of capital which then supported the subsequent growth of industrialization within Britain? Or, or am I maybe simplifying things too much? Well, yeah, so one thing that's, that we need to be careful of there is that the trading companies originally are actually just trading companies. Um, yes, sailors abroad will probably use violence from time to time. Um, but it's worth bearing in mind that Britain, like, I think that there's, there's a risk that we kind of project a particular late 18th century or 19th century idea of British naval supremacy back further in the past than it's actually merited. Um, you know, England, yes, it has very good ships. Um, yes, it has a very wide trading network in, say, the early 17th century. 
but it's really a minor player when it comes to the places that a hundred years later it will have conquered. Um, you know, England cannot compete with the Mughal Empire, frankly, in the in the 1640s, 50s, 60s. Um, it's very much at the mercy of local rulers, or its merchants are very much at the, at the mercy of local rulers um, at that stage. And so a lot of the capital that's built up is, I think, from trade. As I say, not always, like, I'm, I'm not saying that it's purely, that there isn't any coercion going on occasionally. Um, and there are obviously English privateers and pirates as well who are, who are perhaps accumulating some of that capital. Um, but yes, it's, it's originally these, these trading companies only later on morph into colony forming companies. Um, though you do start to see some hints of it with, with the New World. Um, so in the Caribbean in the mid 17th century, certainly you've got the Virginia Company, you've got the Bermuda Company um, a little bit earlier in, in, the, in the early 17th century. So there is an element of colonial expansion, but really, I mean, if you look at the trading figures, um, the New World really isn't that important until quite late on. So from, from really from the late 17th century onwards, the Atlantic starts to take on much greater importance. And before then, the major sources of capital are places like the Mediterranean, um, which, the, which England hadn't really traded with that much um, before the mid-16th century, but becomes this major source of, of capital for further endeavours. You know, a lot of the founders of the East India Company were also involved in the Levant Company, who were trading with the Eastern Mediterranean. So this is trading with the Ottoman Empire, with, with Venice, um, with Genoa, um, often exporting, importing um, currants and raisins, and um, like that's that's the that's often a major source of capital early on, which then obviously can accumulate um, or rather gets recycled um, later on. So we do have this kind of the, the story is a bit more complicated, I think, um, in that respect. And I would say, you know, one of the really striking things about England is that actually it's already by the 1650s that it's starting to look from an international perspective at being quite special, that there's already something going on that that invention is already bubbling up quite a bit and people are already starting to remark on the fact that they seem that inventors seem to be a lot more kind of densely uh, placed there that they're not just inventing they're also applying those inventions um, and that London is is this very rapidly growing um, commercial hub um, in a way that it hadn't really been before I mean one just to put this in perspective London is probably one of the fastest growing cities in human history by the 1650s where it wasn't just the result of a capital moving you know within some very massive empire where everyone's kind of forcibly moved from one place to another you know it goes from about 50,000 people in the 1550s to 500,000 people in the 1650s so a, a 10x improvement um, in the size of this one city um, is really quite significant and that seems to be generating a lot of spillovers uh, when it comes to innovation as well. And a lot of that growth, as far as I can tell, seems to almost overwhelmingly be from the expansion of, of, of England's trading range. So going away from just the kind of coastal trade in, you know, across to France, perhaps to, to the Bay of Biscay, um, so a little bit to northern Spain, um, and actually expanding into the Mediterranean, up into the White Sea to trade with Russia, a little bit across um, the Atlantic to trade um, with the New World, and also starting to venture a little further afield into the Indian Ocean go by going all the way around the Cape of Good Hope as well. And is it that growth and that expansion that 
I guess, explains why it was Britain as opposed to, you know, Belgium or as opposed to the Mughal Empire or perhaps even why Britain instead of Italy after the Renaissance? Um, yeah, it's it's hard to say, really, because the really the, the closest comparator there is the Dutch Republic, um, because they're they're extremely good at, at I mean, the, the, the Dutch East India Company is significantly more effective than the English East India Company for about the first uh, 70, 80, if not more years. Um, they're much better at sending out ships. They're much better at setting up factories, by which I mean um, places for factors to do trading um, elsewhere in the world. Um, they're much better at defending those factories, um, and they're much better at uh, bringing in um, quite a lot of capital uh, or, or quite a lot of profit from those ventures than the English are. So they get extremely rich, um, and a lot of that wealth is based on trade, and yet from about the 1650s, the Dutch Republic suddenly seems to stagnate, um, which a lot of people suspect is because they run up against energy constraints. So they often you often hear talk about them running out of peat versus the English relying on coal, which is actually not quite true because in the 1650s, the Dutch seem to be still be fine for, for peat. Um, so something happens and suddenly Dutch invention seems to drop off a cliff. Um, the rate of the rate of GDP per capita improvement suddenly just seems to stagnate. It kind of stays at a very high, rich level, but it doesn't seem to go much further. So trade seems to be a really important precondition of the kind, um, but it seems as though you need something more. And one thing that I suspect is playing a role there is that with the Dutch Republic, it ends up urbanising from an already pretty high um, level, because the, the whole of the Low Countries, present-day Belgium, present-day um, um, Netherlands, um, it was already an extremely urban area from, from the late Middle Ages onwards. Um, but the Dutch Republic, in terms of the, the effect of trade, it, it's quite distributed amongst lots of different cities rather than all concentrated on a single city, as seems to happen in England, where London is the one that massively grows and seems to push the national rate of urbanisation quite high. Um, but actually the other cities, although they grow as well, they don't grow by anywhere near as much. So I think that concentration, a particular you know, agglomerated way is perhaps playing a bit of a role there as well. I'm conscious that um, Joel Mokir suggested mm. that Britain's advantage may really have been in adopting and adapting the innovations of others. And I can imagine that through that process of trade and exploration, they were coming into contact with the uh, innovations of others. How realistic is that argument, do you think? Oh, I think that's that's very well grounded in the evidence that we have. I mean, Britain has, or England, sorry, has a reputation by 1700, if not by 1650, when you first start to see hints of this, of having that reputation where foreigners are talking about how if you want something invented, go to somewhere like France. If you want something improved, um, go to England. And I think that's the key element, is that they're really good at taking any technology from wherever and not just applying it, but actually making it better. Um, so this idea of improvement is the really key thing. And so uh, you know, my main thesis really about how to think about invention is that what we're really looking at is an, a mentality of improvement or improving mindset that spreads from person to person. And so to the extent that you have institutions that aid 
the Industrial Revolution or, or cause it, it's those institutions that facilitate that spread from person to person of this mentality. Because the one thing that all these innovators seem to have in common is that, I mean, they seem to have this improved mentality. It's like that seems to be the thing that actually defines um, what makes someone into an, into an inventor. Inventors are extremely rare as people, even today when we're quite used to this idea of, you know, constant improvement, you know, that our iPhone will get better every single year, that our televisions will get better every single year. You know, improvement is so common today that I think we don't quite appreciate how rare it could have been in the past. And I think that's the case, is that essentially there were very, very few inventors in the whole of human history. Uh, it's not that England was the first to have inventors, that's you know, a ludicrous thing to, thing to say. You can look at Sun Dynasty China, you can look at the Dutch Republic, you can look at Renaissance Italy, inventors existed, and they had their own networks as well. But in England in the 16th and 17th centuries, um, it's as though they come up with ways to spread that improvement mentality much faster. Because the thing that all these inventors have in common is you know, they're not just inventing in particular fields, they're also um, quite polymathic in the sense that they will improve one area and then if they see that somewhere else has room for improvement they'll then turn their attentions to that. So you have later on you'll have you know, potters turning to, to improving steam engines to going on to you know, improving knickknacks and umbrellas and, and all sorts of other stuff as well. Um, a lot of the time they're not necessarily even that skilled um, so what you often see is that inventors, they see room for improvement and then they find out the kind of means to the end that, of, of improvement. So they might self-educate to try and um, get the skills that they'll need to, to do or to, to, to implement the improvement that they see is lacking. Um, or perhaps they'll rely on other experts to kind of do those elements um, for them. Um, and then the other aspect that's, that I found in my research is that they do actually tend to know one another before they then become inventors. So essentially, you, you will often have an inventor you know, going into a community of, of some sort. A random non-inventor meets that inventor and then very soon afterwards tends to start inventing themselves as well. So you can often actually trace that spread of the improvement mentality from person to person. So London being this extremely dense city and growing city is, I think, important. And I think there's another aspect that I think makes England or gives England an edge, right? It's not like invention isn't also happening in other parts of Europe or even parts of the world more broadly. I think the edge that England has is that quite uniquely, it has a very poor monarchy, um, quite a really cash-strapped state, essentially. And what that means is that when you have this dense commercial center at the same time, you end up with the sources of support for invention being extremely broad. Um, and as a result of it being extremely broad, being extremely robust. Because what you often see in other parts of Europe is that you might have a prince, let's say, of some principality in the Holy Roman Empire who's a massive fan of invention, and you know they'll bring in inventors from, from all over Europe and they'll patronize them for a bit, and then they die. And then all those inventors disperse and they go elsewhere. What happens in England is that once you go to England, the chances of you finding another patron in England, or in London really specifically, is very, very high, even if your patron dies, right? Because there are so many other people um, who are potentially doing, doing it. You know, it's not just the king or the queen that you're relying on, um, because, because they're not actually the main source of patronage from very early on. Because you have trading companies, because you have... Um, these much broader networks and because you have um, a very healthy print culture which means that a lot of the invention ends up 
kind of being done in this very distributed way where people are publishing in order to get patrons' attentions um, and then thereby also spreading invention because they're showing their working um, to the public at large. You end up with this, I think, very robust um, and very kind of long-standing method of, of propagating the improving mentality. It's really interesting listening to, to what you're saying there and the way you describe the English context because I can't help but draw a link and draw a parallel perhaps to Silicon Valley these days where, and, and feel free to disagree with me, sure. but you, you have a, a government in the US which is typically a little bit hands-off, it doesn't you know, invest in the same way that, say, a, a Northern European social democracy would. Um, there's a, a cluster of, of different people working in technology and coming together and sharing their ideas and, and doing things. And then you also have this venture capital hmm. uh, ecosystem where if I go to, to one venture capitalist and they don't like what I'm talking about, I can go to another and they might like what I'm talking about and I might get funding from there. So you have this, uh, I guess, ecosystem coming together, which to my naive mind sounds very similar to what you're describing there as, as grew up and developed in England. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right because... Yeah, I mean, venture capitalists is a really nice example as well, because often venture capitalists are former inventors, right? They're often people who, you know, created some innovation, they got extremely rich off that, and then they're like, what should I do? I'm not just going to, you know, rush off to the Hamptons and buy a big house and go and kind of retreat from from society and, and really kind of economic life. Instead, I'm going to put my money in the riskiest thing imaginable, which is investing in other inventors. Right, that's actually quite interesting, right? It's it's quite a rare thing to do, and and actually London in this period has a very similar thing going on, where and not and you know all the way through to the nineteenth century and perhaps a bit beyond that as well, you have people who are becoming rich off innovation, often then supporting the efforts of other innovators later on, not in the same kind of formalized way as as say a venture capital firm, but certainly in a kind of more more informal patronage based way. I mean, you see something very similar early on with the um, the trading, the very early trading companies like the Muscovy Company, is that a lot of the early investors in it are also investors in other trading companies, uh, which are often, you know, being quite innovative. They're saying, you know, we have never sailed all the way to such and such a region. Perhaps we should, you know, put the put together the capital to to do that. You know, extremely extremely high risk, but potentially very high reward ventures. And there are plenty of other trading companies which we never hear of because they, they failed. Um, but, you know, the, the, it's interesting how often the, the same people are behind a lot of these things in the same way that today, you know, you look around Silicon Valley and very often the same investor names keep cropping up again and again and again. And does that then suggest that, it, again, if we maybe draw upon some of those lessons or parallels, that there are some some key insights for policymakers or maybe even for, for leaders and organizations who are trying to develop an ecosystem of invention and innovation that maybe they should pull back a bit and 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 just let people at it or or am i maybe overreading it yeah i don't know it's an interesting question in a way i, I guess that to the extent yeah so the, i guess the the question is whether or not government funding of, of invention can crowd out the the kind of more robust private ecosystem yeah um, and i'm not 
I'm not sure that's quite the case. Um, I think if you already have some elements of an ecosystem, adding more funding to the mix doesn't really make that much of a difference. I mean, it's not. This is not to say, right, that Elizabeth the First, that James the First, that Charles the First, and 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 later monarchs as well. It's not to say that they didn't also have, you know, they didn't also patronize inventors. They did. Um, it's just that they seem to have been so unreliable from an early period later on. Uh, from an early period that later on there was already an ecosystem there in addition to them. So, you know, someone like George III, over, you know, whose, whose reign covers pretty much the entire classic period of the Industrial Revolution in terms of how a lot of the kind of traditional histories would, would, would paint it, um, you know, he's probably one of, the, one of the best patrons for invention of, of any recent monarch from, from that kind of period. Um, so it's not to say that that happens, but I think, I guess the crucial element is that very early on, the, the, the state was strapped for cash. And so in comparison to other European countries, um, it ends up kind of inadvertently with this print culture, which then is self-sustaining later on. Um, so I think once you've got the self-sustaining element, I don't think it matters a great, great deal. Um, but also there's a kind of difference between modern states where once you've set up a bureaucracy to, say, fund invention, that can be there in perpetuity um, versus, you know, monarch-led um, states where essentially it's going to be at the personal whims of the monarch. I don't think we quite see that today. So I think that stability of funding is perhaps a major difference there as well that should maybe caution us about drawing um, what, too wide a parallel there. And and I know this this might be uh, outside your your you know initial remit as an historian of innovation, but but would you see any insights for say people in organizations that how they perhaps engage w with innovation within the context of those organizations i mean should they be going out and, and trying to network with as many other innovators and innovative organizations as possible or is it perhaps something else they should be doing yeah it's interesting i mean so if the improving mentality thesis is correct it suggests that if you were to hire someone who is already quite innovative or even has that improving mindset that they may well, um, inadvertently even, spread that mindset to other start, other employees um, within a firm. Um, so you should see some kind of spread effect there. Now that's not to say that that will automatically happen, and it's possible that there are things that can stifle people's ability to improve things. Um, but I think that once people have the improving mindset, they tend to st they, they can be quite dogged, um, and they can really try to, to push things through. Um, I guess the part of the element there, though, is that from a managerial perspective, is being open to those sorts of improvements. I mean, the other thing I just I just mentioned though is that I think there's there's been a kind of I don't know if it's unhealthy as such, um, but there has been this this I think it's more that it's inaccurate focus on this idea that when you have a disruptive invention, that the disruptiveness involves the actual is actually part of the innovative process itself. And I'm not sure that's quite true. Um, and actually, I think the way that invention tends to work is that it's essentially people are improving things and they do lots and lots of marginal improvements. And those marginal improvements can, in retrospect, or once you bundle them all together and present it as the invention, those marginal improvements and that bundle of them, that collection of them, can appear to be this great leap forward that can then disrupt you know, the, the way that things are done. And I think the, the more accurate way to think about invention is really to say 
it's about marginal improvement. You know, the thing that, that if, if you wanted a company to be more innovative, the thing you should be doing is saying, have a widespread remit across the whole company saying, how do I make X um, process 1% more efficient? Not 100%, not 50%, just 1% more efficient every year. Right, and it's that, that attitude to how do I just tweak things or kind of how do I get those even those small marginal improvements every single year? That's the kind of way to actually get quite potentially over the long run. And once you accumulate all those things together, um, those will appear to be quite major innovations. I mean, it's the same with, say, your iPhone, right? When you look at the thing, the iPhone of today is completely different to the iPhone of, of uh, you know, even just about a decade ago. Like the, the experience of using it is massively, massively different. And that's as a result of all this marginal improvement accumulating to the extent that it's almost beyond recognition better. I can really see uh, links there to, you know, the idea of continuous improvement that, that grew out of the, the Japanese management approaches. Yeah. Uh, and, and also, um, wasn't it... Uh, Dave Brailsford, who the the, uh, the the British cycling coach, who, who would talk about marginal gains and just making those small gains, which all add up over time to make big gains. Now, I know there are certain things that have happened in the background um, in in terms of uh, cycling, but I'm leaving those aside for now. <laughs> but, but but definitely those those marginal gains, those continuous improvements, that just all add up over time yeah. to, to lead to something much bigger and better. Exactly. And I think that really does... I mean, I've, I've yet to find an example of an invention where that wasn't the case. Like, even the big, big, big breakthrough inventions, I've never found an example where someone just out of nowhere came up with something that wasn't essentially a marginal... or a series of marginal improvements over something else. It, it makes a, a huge amount of sense. I mentioned in the introduction your uh, newsletter, Age of Invention. Mm -hmm. If people wanted to find out more about your research or if they wanted to subscribe to the newsletter, where can they go? Yes, yeah, so they go to Anton House, so my name basically, .substack.com. Um, that's definitely one of the best places. I've also got my website, AntonHouse.com, where everything is, is also stored. Um, but the, the newsletter is definitely the first port of call, I would say, in terms of essentially getting to read things as I write them or as I research them. And I, I try to update it very regularly. All right. That sounds great. Dr. Anton Howes, thank you so much for joining us today on Brain for Business. Thank you. Thank you.